If this runs, I can. Yeah, so I can have those duplicated. All right, everybody seated. Everybody get a program. There's a few programs left. Anybody need a program? <laughs> Couple, oh, that's good. Two hands, two programs. Okay. Ludwig Wittgenstein. Ludwig Wittgenstein is almost certainly, although it's hard to prove these things, so everybody puts, they hedge their bets, almost certainly the most influential philosopher of the 20th century. How many people have ever heard of this guy? Yeah, well, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, because he's not generally well-known. Um, one of the reasons he's not well-known is he only published a single very slim book in his lifetime called The Tractatus, which you have a, a selection from in the inside page, and we'll talk about that. Uh, and from someone who has to do a lecture like this, he would love a philosopher who's only published about 80 pages of material in his lifetime. That's great. He's the greatest philosopher ever. No, uh, he wrote a lot but he only published very little because of his exacting standards. Fascinating life, fascinating man. For Throughout the lecture, please keep in mind his early life because it's truly unique early life. He was born into the Wittgenstein family, which is to say, think of the Gates. It would be like being the son of Bill Gates. Probably the largest private fortune in Europe, um, if not the largest... It, as large as anybody else's, but probably the single largest private fortune in Europe, larger than the Rothschilds, larger than most of the Nobel families, although a few of the Nobel families sort of beat them out. Um, this is a time when Vienna is the capital of the uh, Habsburg <coughs> Empire. Um, it, is, it is a world that is lost to us because it was destroyed in World War I and then destroyed even further in World War II. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, as it's also called. Um, he, his world, he's born in 1889, by the way, his world was dying as he was growing up. Everything that he believed in, that he was raised with, that he saw, died. Many of his family members, the social structure he was raised in, the class that he was raised in, the, first the empire and then the country that he was born into, all those ceased to exist over the course of his lifetime. It was a continuous series of fundamental devastations of, of the most basic things. The closest analogy I could think of is that you have to imagine as if Washington, first the United States ceases to exist, and we all become citizens of Washington. Well, we'll be kind of like, if you want to go to Oregon or Idaho, you need a passport. You can't just go across the border. You can't use our money over there. It's their money you can't use over here. Um, can't visit your family and friends in, in California or Florida or New York or wherever because they won't let you cross. That's like 27 borders away now. You know, that's all gone. And then as if Washington was eliminated. Right? Later in your life, Washington's gone. So he's born into this amazing family, into this, in this very wealthy business class family. And the strange thing in the Austro-Hungarian Empire at this time, and its capital of Vienna being particularly noted for this, is the business class, unlike America today, had virtually no influence on anything. They were almost totally without political power. They had a little bit for a little while, and they lost it. And there were two large competing forces. One was the aristocracy, which tended to be extraordinarily resistant to any kind of change. Very backward looking, much more than other places in Europe where the aristocracy said, well, we'll cut a deal. No. The Austro-Hungarian aristocracy was like, not only are we not going to cut a deal, we're going to become more conservative. And if you try to make a deal, we're going to become reactionary. I don't know what's beyond reactionary, but that's where they ended up. <laughs> um, and so that's the one political force. This was huge, powerful, wealthy political forces. You know, obviously well entrenched, it's the government. On the other side, you have the new nationalism. But the new nationalism is Czech nationalism, uh, Ronrovian nationalism. Um, it's, it's all the problems that we have in the Balkans now, they had then. It's, the Balkans have been like that forever, apparently. Even before there were people, apparently, like the squirrels were warring in the Balkans. <laughs> we don't know. Whatever it is, something there makes people fight. But So they had all the Balkan nationalists. And these tended to be, A, extremely nationalist, and B, um, a large component of them organized themselves along anti-Semitic lines. And the Wittgensteins were Jewish, although vaguely Jewish. And we'll talk about that. And so you have nationalist, sort of right-wing, anti-Semitic, 
working class and peasant groups pitted against wealthy internationalists, because nationalism is evil to an aristocrat, it's the opposite of the aristocracy, um, but also conservative and resistant. Those are the two forces that were battling it out. In between, you had what we would call sort of small L liberal, um, sort of socially conservative democratic forces of the middle class. And they were getting ground to dust, absolutely eliminated. And they were, they, were, they became extinct um, for a time. Now, so what they did, and this, this is, it's amazing, is you have the cultural fluorescence of the Art Nouveau. This is where Art Nouveau comes from, from these people. You have no political outlet for your wealth. You have no social power to speak of. What do you do? You invest in the arts, architecture, painting, music, plays, literature. It's hugely important, unbelievably important to these people. Uh, Gustav Klimt, people, the painter you may have heard of, he was the family painter for the Wittgensteins. Many of his most favorite portraits are Wittgenstein's brothers and sisters. And all throughout his life, they would, you know, people would go to him with a museum and they go, ah, it's a beautiful Klimt portrait. Wittgenstein would be like, that's my sister. And he'd be like, who the hell are you? You know, and he'd be like, well, you know, it's, well, that's, you know, that's my sister, right? Um, uh, they funded him. Uh, many of the major buildings that are associated with the Art Nouveau were built with money from the Wittgensteins. They had a house composer, a guy who lived at their house, I mean, house, mansion, composer, and composed for them. Um, but, so on one hand, they tried to build a bulwark against the world with art, which doesn't work. It's a nice try. We get a wonderful cultural legacy from it, but it, inevitably it fails. Um, this does not work. Also, these were extraordinary people. Um, Victor Stein's oldest brother, he was four brothers, was a noted composer, and, and the entire family considered him an extraordinary musical genius, which from this family, as you'll see, is, is high praise indeed. He committed suicide. Um, when his father basically wouldn't allow him to pursue music but wanted him to go into business. Um, this changed his father's attitude about such things. He's like, okay, everybody can do whatever they want. <laughs> right? He was like, okay. Um, second brother also committed suicide under very different circumstances. Um, a brother very close in age to Wittgenstein committed suicide. They are all extraordinarily artistic, generally very musically inclined. In fact, Wittgenstein was noted as being non-musical. Um, one of his brothers uh, was a touring concert pianist in Europe. World, World War I breaks out. He gets his, his arm blown off. And so he had, they commissioned composers to write one-handed compositions for the piano. If you've heard of this guy, this is Wittgenstein's brother. So he continued being a touring concert pianist with one arm. And everybody in the family said, he's no good. Your sister plays much better than you do, and your older brother who committed suicide... You guys aren't even close. <laughs> right? So, I mean, this was, the standards in this family were extraordinarily high. So, Wittgenstein has this problem. What do you do in a family with these kind of standards um, when, A, you're not terribly musically inclined, and B, it's not clear you have any gifts at all. And so, he was torn. And this, this fundamental problem faced him his whole life is, first he thought, well, I'll suck up to dad. I'll go into business. And this is how he ends up in engineering school. And immediately he realizes, I'm not cut out for business. Smart, capable, very good with his hands. Could build virtually anything with his hands. Um, and so yeah, he struggles around and he says, all right, well, I'll go to England. And I'll, and I'll go to Manchester and I'll study engineering there. Uh, by the way, he designed an early prototype of a jet engine in like the 1920s, just in his spare time. Um, one of the earliest prototypes that was known to exist of a jet engine. And it actually was built later as a different kind of engine. But, um, but he lost his interest in engineering. Um, and he started studying math, closely related to engineering. Ah, now he becomes very interested. And because he was studying math, he became interested in mathematical logic. First, Gottlob Frege's work on mathematical logic, and then, as we discussed last time, Bertrand Russell's work on mathematical logic. Now, Wittgenstein was nothing if not driven. And when he decided he wanted to study something, by God, he studied it. And so he studied and studied and studied, and he went over and visited Gottlieb Frege and said, look, I want to work with you. And Frege went, you're a little too intense for me. 
Why don't you go see Bertrand Russell? There's, that, there's this great moment of, you're scary, go see Russell. And so we have these letters and notes from Russell's diary where he says, this crazy German, actually Austrian, but this crazy German has been in here yelling at me in German. <laughs> Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Why is he? And he keeps coming back and coming back and eventually... Vic, uh, Russell realizes that Wittgenstein knows more about the mathematical logical work that Russell's been doing than anybody he knows with the exception of Alfred North Whitehead. Wittgenstein had studied line by line the entire uh, mathematical logic, the two huge volumes that Russell had written. He knew them, more or less memorized them. And he said, I want to work with you on this. And Russell finally goes, the disciple I've been waiting for. Here's, here's the man I want. Let's bring him on board. And so they arranged for some sort of fellowship at Cambridge for him, which only later, because they thought he was in very straightened circumstances. They thought he didn't have any money. And so they said, well, we'll, we'll pull some strings and we'll get you a scholarship. And Wittgenstein's like, great. <laughs> right? And uh, there's a great letter actually surviving from... He goes home for Christmas, and like the guy who lives across the hall from me says, well, you want to go with Vienna with me and stay with my family? And he says, okay. And when he comes back, he's like, Wittgenstein's not poor. <laughs> you know, this is not a poor guy. The house has like 19 grand pianos and 200 servants, and it's bigger than Cambridge, all right? Uh, so they all thought he was this poor, suffering guy from Vienna who didn't have any money. Um, but he begins working very seriously. In fact, I believe the word would be devoutly. Throughout his life, Wittgenstein was really trying to become a saint. And what he was pursuing was truth, as I keep mentioning, with a capital T. And so what he wanted to do was pretty straightforward in a way, but I want to give an example of what this means, and we'll return to this time again. He wanted to know the possibilities and limits of truth, not so that he can publish an academic paper, obviously he doesn't care about publishing academic papers, but because he wanted to live a true life. Practice. He keeps returning this practice. I want to be a true person. I want to be an honest person. I want to be a direct person. I want to be a good person. I don't want to deceive myself. I don't want to deceive anybody else. But how do I know when I'm actually being true? And so his interest in the truth sort of ends up overwhelming everybody. Because most of the people he works with are you know, philosophers and thinkers. They're interested in truth in the sense of, oh, there's truth out there. He's like, no, true. What is true right now, here? Um, and so the problem he tackles sort of essentially is this. And I want you to raise your hand. This is, this is, or not raise your hand, but think of these. Answer these questions. Please be honest to yourself and keep a little score. In the past six months, have any of these occurred to you at least once? If more than once, okay. Have you ever not paid close attention to detail or made a careless mistake? <laughs> Have you ever had trouble paying attention? <laughs> Any time in the last six months. Can you say that one again? Yeah. Besides yourself. Do you have trouble following instructions or finishing your work? Do you have trouble occasionally organizing activities? Are you forgetful in your daily activities? Do you avoid things that take a lot of mental work? <coughs> Do you ever fidget in your seat? <laughs> Do you have trouble relaxing or enjoying leisure activities once in the last six months? Do you often feel as if you are on the go or as if driven by a motor? Have you talked excessively in the last six months? <laughs> Have you interrupted someone or intruded on their argument within the last six months? If you've answered yes to any of these, you have ADHD. <laughs> this is from the official DSM-4 criteria for ADHD. And if you have more than six episodes of all of these combined within a six-month period, by God, you need drugs. <laughs> you need some Ritalin. So I've got a bag. I'll pass it out to you. Now, it's crazy. Yes, thank you. That's what Wittgenstein thought. Of course, they didn't have this then, but this is his point. This is where he started from. He said, look, just because we can ask a question 
or find a problem does not mean it has meaning. I can create a list. We understand all the questions. We can answer them. I can organize them and I can put a label on them. Attention deficit disorder. I've created a disease. Now we treat it. This does not make the disease real or true. It does not make the treatment effective or ineffective. It makes the treatment pointless because it's being applied to something that very probably doesn't exist. But notice we act as if it has meaning. And, and so what do you want to know is, A, why do we do that? Because it seems stupid, but they sell a lot of Redlin, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and in many other instances. But when, how can we be sure? How can we really know that we're working on something that is true? And so the first book he wrote, um, Tractus Logico-Philosophicus, was an attempt to do precisely this. He said, I want to set the limits on what is knowable. Within the bounds will be the knowable things that we can talk about meaningfully. Outside of it, we must remain silent. And he started working on this at Cambridge. And it begins to dawn on Russell that Wittgenstein might not be the guy he thought he was. <laughs> Because Wittgenstein goes, I think everything you're writing is wrong. <laughs> and Russell says, well, you might be confused. <laughs> and Wittgenstein says, but I don't know if I really am a philosopher. He thinks maybe I should kill myself because he's from his family and he's from Vienna. And everybody at that time from Vienna apparently thought they should kill themselves. It was sort of a fat, literally sort of a fat, something you did. Um, but he's, he's serious and depressed, and he moves to a small cabin in Norway, extraordinarily remote Norway. Uh, so remote that even the people who lived out in the remote area thought, why are you going out there that's really remote? <laughs> but he went to work. He said, I have to write something to demonstrate that it's worthy, I'm worthy of being a philosopher, that I have something to say on this issue of truth. Something honest, something that's real, something that's true. Because if he could, he, he could argue and make points and publish papers, this was not a problem. He was not interested in that. He said, can I come up with something that is actually true, applicable, and available for people? And he sends this work to Russell, and Russell reads through it and reads through it and, and sort of decides, as do other people, well, this is the smartest math logician in the world. Uh, many of the best math logicians stop, decided this immediately upon seeing his work and talking to him and working with him. But nobody else has seen his work. So you have this strange circumstance where you have this guy writing work, none of which has been published, and sending letters and having conversations, very distant, separate conversations, um, with the greatest minds in Europe, because Russell and Frege sort of introduce him around, who all become convinced he's a genius, and nobody knows who he is. He knows ten people. He just happens to know the ten people who matter. Um, uh, eventually, the Tractus is his dissertation uh, at Cambridge because they want to give him a PhD so that he can teach. And the two people who sat on his dissertation, one was a student of his, and the other was Russell who said, you know more about everything than I do. <laughs> and so it was this sham which drove him mad. But anyway, so he goes out into the nether reaches of, of the countryside to work on this. And he works and he works and he works and he finally decides a major breakthrough in, in the approach to understanding how things are. And he says, look, logic works like this. It's a picture of the world. Words do not mean anything in and of themselves. Their arrangement constructs a picture of how the world is. It's the form of language, not the content, that allows something to be true or false. And so if you look at the interior here, this is 2.2. Oh, all the scribbles are because this is copies from my book, and those are my scribbles. Um, the picture represents a possible state of affairs in a logical space. The picture contains the possibility of the state of affairs which it represents. The picture agrees with reality or not. It is right or wrong, true or false. Two things. We're going to create a picture in language, and that picture is either going to be right or wrong, 
True or false? That's the only possibility. The picture represents what it represents independent of its truth or falsehood through the form of representation. What the picture represents is its sense. In the agreement or disagreement of its sense with reality, its truth or fallacy consists. So you have reality, you have a picture of reality. If you can get them to line up, it's true. If you can't, it's not true. This is called the verification principle of logic, and it launched an entire school. Whole departments study nothing but this theory. One of his first major contributions to philosophy. Uh, as soon as he published this book, by the way, he completely recants this. He says, this is dumb. I don't know what I was thinking. But it was hugely influential. Um, again, major, major influence on 20th century philosophy. He says, in order to discover whether the picture is true or false, we must compare it with reality. It cannot be discovered from the picture alone whether it is true or false, which is to say, you can't just look at a sentence and go, oh, what does this sentence mean? Is it true or false? No, it's meaning... No, it's how it associates as an analogy with reality. Um, the logical picture of the facts is the thought. An atomic fact is thinkable, means we can imagine it. The totality of true thoughts is a picture of the world. You can only think true things, he said this. You cannot think untrue thoughts. So the accumulation of the entirety of all our thoughts is a picture of the entire knowable universe in our heads all the time. This is just a radical deviation from what anybody had ever argued about meaning. Whether it's true or not is a whole different question, but it's certainly a radical deviation. Um, we cannot think anything unlogical, for otherwise we would have to think unlogically. Which is to say, thinking by its very nature is logical thought. We have no choice in this matter. It's what thinking is. It's what it means to think. If you're not logical, you're not thinking. You might be doing something else, but it's not thinking. <laughs> it used to be said that God could create everything except what was contrary to the laws of logic. The truth is, we cannot say of an unlogical world how it would look. There's not even we wouldn't even know if God created an unlogical world. As you may be gathering from this, Wittgenstein is very hard to read. <laughs> and, and, and that's because he was writing to about ten logical mathematic mathematicians, and about eight of them had no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> um, and, and so his audience very small. He wrote in the manner of someone. Uh, anybody bake? This is the example I could come up with. If, if you bake pies, one of the problems with making pies is how do you put enough water in to make the dough workable, but not so much water that it gets sticky and icky. Well, one of the ways you can address this is if you pour vodka in instead of water, when you bake the pie, almost all the liquid cooks out. And so you get a flaky crust, but also one that you can work when you're making the pie. Very easy explanation. What Wittgenstein wrote was, if everybody was here and you were all bakers, he would say, vodka, not water. And walk off. <laughs> well, if you're a professional baker, you'd go, oh, that is genius. If you're not, you're like, vodka? What the hell is that German guy talking about? <laughs> but everything he wrote was in the form of vodka, not water. And so it's, without context, it's, it's very tricky. So he's working furiously on the Tractatus, but he does not like the university life at Cambridge. And so he keeps saying, oh, I should quit. I should become a doctor. Oh, I should do this. I should do that. Well, World War I breaks out. And he thought, I know. I'll volunteer for the army, which is hilarious. He, he did not belong in the military. He did very well. He was commended for bravery. He was in, in the front lines um, in World War I, fought with the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, of course, as an artillery guy, engineer. Um, and here's what he wrote. So, so you know World War I. Everybody familiar? Trench warfare, terrible, all that blood and death. Yes, here he is, front lines, volunteering for duty. His diary entries and his letters home, you cannot believe the sleeping conditions. You cannot believe how dirty it is. I try to have conversations with these people. They just don't know anything. He never writes about, oh, we got bombed for 27 hours and half our people were killed, which was true. Not that. He's just like, oh, man, this is terrible. The shoes are ugly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, Wittgenstein. Yeah. And so, one of the things that happens to him in the war is he has this 
struggle of consciousness, and he tries to become religious. He tries very hard to become religious. Um, because he realizes that his theory of logic as propounded in the tractus, which is not published yet, which he's been working on. He actually worked on this while he was in the trenches being shelled, which is impressive in some ways, um, is, is lacking. That this is not enough. That when you're out there in a watch post being shelled at night in Russia, the mathematical logic might not just do it. Um, and so first thing he did is he tried to become religious, and he, and he struggled with this for his whole life, but he, he realized in his private diaries he wrote this long, beautiful argument about why God must exist. And then the next line is, anybody who has to write that argument has no faith. Which is absolutely true, right? You can't, if you have faith, you can't write that argument. And that's where he was. And so he comes to the second realization, which is how he was able to finish the Tractatus. Um, and this is the second page here, which is the last page of the Tractatus. Say nothing except what can be said, i.e., the proposition of natural science, i.e., something that has nothing to do with philosophy, and then always, when someone else wished to say something metaphysical, to demonstrate to him that he has given no meaning to certain signs in his propositions. This method would be unsatisfying to others. He would not have the feeling that we were teaching in philosophy, but it would be the only strictly correct method. Notice that. You say something metaphysical, I tell you you're wrong. If I don't do that... I'm not being honest with you. So here's what he, how he solves this. He says it's not helpful, but we also have this whole realm that isn't addressed with truth and falsity and certainty. My propositions are elucidatory in this way. He who understands me finally recognizes them as senseless. When he has climbed out through them, on them, over them, he must, so to speak, throw away the ladder after he has climbed up on it. So ignore everything I've written up to this point. He must surmount these propositions, then he sees the world rightly. Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Big blank spot. That's why I have that circled on there. Big blank. Look, the part that is able to be dealt with logically this big. Tiny. Everything else hugely important but you can't talk about it in an honest fashion. It's virtually incommunicable, therefore it's dishonest, therefore quiet. By the way, he tried to join a monastery one time and the monks wisely said, no, no. <laughs> You're just going to create problems. Uh, go away. So he comes back after the war, he publishes this, becomes his dissertation, which is hilarious, published one of the most important books in Western philosophical tradition, and then it's your dissertation, um, and says, fine, I'm done. I've said everything, not only I have to say, I've said everything that is sayable in philosophy, which is sort of a <laughs> grand claim. I like someone who makes a bold statement, right? There is nothing more that can be said. Um, and he goes off to teach elementary school in rural Austria, which is uh, not a good job for him. It turns out that he's very strict, as most saints have a history of being. Tended to hit the children in the head, uh, tended to, but, he, but he developed some very interesting teaching methods that were quite effective. Um, yeah. After a while, he starts having doubts about his career as an elementary school teacher. And he goes... And he starts having doubts about the tractus. He decides that there is perhaps more to be said in philosophy. So he writes to his friends at Cambridge, who's always been in communication with, and they're like, yeah, come on back anytime. We'll give you a professorship. He's like, I don't know if I want to be a professor, but I'll come for a visit. And he starts working on material uh, that is published in what are called the Blue and Brown Notebooks. He has students who are taking notes, and he gives them some typed notes for them to work off of but he never meant for them to be published. But they are one of the transitional works that we have between the Tractus and his last major work, which is called Philosophical Investigations. And what he's decided is that the Tractus is stupid. And here's why. He says, look, what I was tricked by, more or less, is that causes, I was looking for the foundational truth of things, and those are, as in the natural sciences, those are causally related. What causes water to boil? Heat, temperature, air pressure, whatever, how you want to think about these things. And he said, here's the mistake. If I walk up to you and shove you down, 
the cause of your fall is me shoving you down. That's not the meaning. The shove is not the meaning of your fall, it's the cause. And you have this realization, he's like, ah, who cares what causes things? We're interested in the meaning of things, which very much may not be related at all to the cause, as in the shove example, which is one of his examples, actually his. And he says, well, this is what happened. This is what science has tricked us into. And so he begins his attack on science. He says, look, causation, always looking to boil things down to a few details. What are the key laws at work that cause things, that structure things, that form things? He says, no, this is wrong. A second example he uses, which uh, which I love, is he says, okay, I take you, I put you in an oven, and I cook you at 2,000 degrees for a few hours, and I get a bucket of ashes. I have you. (laughs) In my bucket. (laughs) I've reduced you to the essential parts, the ash part. And he thought that we're missing something if we do that. We lose essential elements of who you are if, for instance, we, you know, kill you. Um, That you cannot dismantle things into component parts. You cannot say behind every statement there is some deeper meaning. You can't say behind an action that somebody takes there's, a, there's some history back there that if we understood that, then that would make all the actions explicable. If we understood some law of science, we'd understand why all the animals do what they do. He said, no, there is no hidden world out there. There is no level behind or beneath or foundational for everything. What you see in the world is very much what you get. You can't always be looking for the scientific laws and codes and secrets. And so he launches this attack on mathematics, which is now called formalism. It's an entire field of mathematics. And he says, look, math works because it works, not because it means anything or there's anything that justifies it. What justifies math is that it works. If it didn't work, it wouldn't be justified. But there's no truth, capital T, truth there. It's a series of rules that we agree to, and if we all agree to the rules, they work. And if we don't agree to the rules, they don't work. But there's no transcendental truth to it. Just get rid of that. Get rid of that idea. Of course, mathematicians hated this. Like, no, what we work on is absolutely <coughs> transcendentally true. Everywhere at all times, it must be. He's like, you can't know that. All you can know is it works here and now. Its meaning is its working. Looking for something below, again, a more foundational law. Remember, this is what Russell's project was. Here's the logical foundation for all of mathematics. Wittgenstein said, no, there is no logical foundation for mathematics. There is no logical foundation for physics. There is no logical foundation for chemistry. There just is chemistry, physics, mathematics, which are just like art and literature and history. Their existence is their justification. Ooh, Now this is fighting words. And so he began to have a lot of fights with a lot of people. Um, But by and large, this this is again become not that popular school, but, but influential school. Because the question is, what are the sciences founded on? Right? He never questioned that science works. He's like, no, science works. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying that's what it's science means that it works. That it doesn't work means it's not science. There is no, you can't draw any further or greater meaning from that. Um, so then what do you do? Well, he started saying, let's, let's look at language and language games. And this became sort of the, where he went. This is two problems. We have problems with language and we have problems with psychology. And so his later works become basically a collection of psychological and linguistic questions centered around often issues of aesthetics. So if you look at the back of the little fold there, this is 200. I love this. Uh, It is, of course, imaginable that two people belonging to a tribe unacquainted with games would sit at a chessboard and go through the moves of a game of chess, and even with all the appropriate mental accomplishments. And if we were to see it, we would say that they were playing chess. But now imagine a game of chess translated according to certain rules into a series of actions which we do not ordinarily associate with a game. 
say, into yells and stamping of feet. And now suppose these two people to yell and stamp feet instead of playing the form of chess that we are used to. And this in such a way that their procedure is translatable by suitable rules into a game of chess. Should we still be inclined to say that they were playing a game? He has about 200 pages of those questions. Now imagine we encounter a tribe. And they make noises like they're talking, but we can't figure out what it means. Are they talking? And he just goes on and on. But they all center on this question. If I play chess against my computer, is my computer playing chess in the same sense that I'm playing chess? Probably not. He says, no, it's probably not, because a computer doesn't think like you do. Can a dog hope? One of his questions. Right? A dog can be afraid. A dog can, can recognize you. But does a dog have hope? You know? What does it mean to have hope if a hope is a thing that a dog can't have? What does it mean to have hope if a hope is a thing a dog can have? Can You can be quickly frightened, but can you have quick despair? Right? So he asks us a whole bunch of these questions. I'm like, like I said, 200 pages of these questions. But they're all centered very specifically on trying to say, look, when we say something, what do we actually mean? Seriously, in detail. We say we hope. Does that, what does hope mean? Can, dog, can a dog hope? If so, are we feeling like a dog? If not, why not? He doesn't answer very many of these questions, by the way. <laughs> Mostly he asks them and then moves on quickly. And it's also important to note that these aphorisms are not in any particular order. It, it, imagine that he typed them up and put them in a drawer and then shook a bag and then sent them to the printer. <laughs> Um, and so they can be difficult to read. He'll go for a paragraph or two and you go, oh, here's an argument. And then you get something totally different. And then you get something totally different again. So again, tricky to read, but once you figure out what he's doing, sort of meaningful. So he invents this thing that's called language games. Again, hugely influential. Where he just throws out scenario after scenario after scenario to test. To say, well, what do we mean when we say that? Do we really mean that when we say that? How, how is that interpreted? How could it possibly be interpreted? What are all possible interpretations? If I dance around like this, and a chessboard, somebody castles. Is that playing chess? <laughs> and how long would I have to dance and the chessboards move before we said, oh, he's dancing a chess game? And, or would we just say, that's stupid. <laughs> you can't dance a chess game. We might. See, we can. But he, his argument essentially is, look, dancing a chess game is different from sitting quietly and moving chess pieces. Those are different things. If you only look at the rules of chess and say, look, the pieces are moving in, in strict association with the rules, then he says, sure, it's all chess. It's all the same. I play my computer. That's the same as if I dance. That's the same as this tribe does who the hell knows what with it. He says, that's a stupid set of rules. If you look at the world that way, you're wrong because that's not how people work. So he moves very quickly into psychology um, and he becomes interested in Freud. He loves Freud, which is shocking. If you read his work and then discover he loves Freud, you're like, really? <laughs> but he hated all the conclusions Freud drew, loved Freud's process. Because he said, look, Freud is great because Freud has no method. <laughs> and if you read Freud's works, it's absolutely true. Freud just made shit up. <laughs> and it's great, and it's convincing, and it's helpful, and it's insightful. But it's not true in any sense of, like, there's a system here that makes us all work out. And that's why he loved Freud, not for his content, but for the system, for the lack of a system, his method, which was no particular method. And the example that he gives for this is he said, look, dreams clearly have meaning, but not the way Freud thinks they have meaning. So he's right to say, look, we have these dreams, we should talk about them, explore them, try to decide. But the example he gives is perfect of where he moves and how complicated his thinking becomes. As he goes, okay, look, guys, you have a dream, and at the end of a dream you feel wonderful. Say in the dream you walk into a street, you pick up a branch, 
You walk to the river, you throw the branch in the river and you see it float away and you feel peaceful and calm and it's beautiful and it's a sunny day. And you wake up and you go, God, I feel good. That was wonderful. I love that dream. And you go to Freud and Freud says, well, the branch was your phallus and the river was your mother stealing your virginity and you know, who the hell knows what's going on? And you're like, what? What a horrible dream. And Wittgenstein says, the mistake is the notion that the symbols of the dream are separable from your feeling. He says, if the interpretation makes you feel different, then the interpretation is not your dream. Because how you feel about something is part of the something. And to say that your feeling is detachable from it is, he says, wrong. It's what's wrong with saying that me playing a computer, a chess playing computer, and myself playing computer, playing chess is the same thing because we follow the same rules. It's not. Because the computer does not feel the way that I feel. Does not experience the sense of the game the way I do. And in that instance, you lose the meaning. Because the meaning is, at least in part, the feeling of the people who are participant. And if we can't have that in our philosophical discussion, well, Wittgenstein doesn't want to talk to you. The problem is, of course, it's hard to get truth out of that. He's like, well, forget truth for now. Let's talk about what we can know, what we can communicate. And so he begins these long explorations of just precisely what it might mean to communicate with another human being and how you can do that. What is communicable? How much is communicable? And so he moves from this little world that he was talking in before to the whole place where he said you have to be silent to where he says, you know what? This is just pointless. We want to talk about this. This is where we live almost all of the time. We almost never live here. And he decides, in fact, that this is a kind of lie. Because it's a lie that tries to say, how I feel does not matter. How I'm thinking does not matter. How the people around me feel and respond and react and think does not matter. And, and this becomes, again, towards his later life, the driving force of his work. He tries to come up with a theory of color. Color is unbelievably complicated, by the way. But if you know anything about color, you know if you hold up one color, and somebody will say red. You hold some color, somebody will say, oh, it's light green. If you hold them close together, they both look sort of bluish. Right? That's weird. And so he says, well, how can we come up with a theory of aesthetics that accounts for the fact that this is all changing? In fact, how do you come up with a theory of anything that accounts for the fact that people have a variable response to just about everything? Uh, that your aesthetic response to a particular color, your perception of the color, might be totally different from my perception of the color. How do we discuss that? What are the rules that we can use to pursue these kinds of discussions? Very difficult. Um, and so in this work, you get these kinds of games, right? Another one. At the end, he says, and hence, also obeying rules is a practice. And to think one is obeying a rule is not to obey a rule. Hence, it is not possible to obey a rule privately. Otherwise, thinking one was obeying a rule would be the same thing as obeying it. And notice this is very important. Because he says, look, just because you think something doesn't make it so. Also, by the way, notice you can't have faith under this model. Very important. That, that, that model right there precludes any kind of faith. You must act. Why must you act? You must act because it's the only way I have of understanding or of you have of communicating what you believe, what you think, what you, what, what you are, essentially, only comes through in process. So he also launches an attack on the notion of freezing things, of saying, okay, stop in time, let's hold everybody still, and we'll run this test on them. Wittgenstein says your test is already wrong. If you freeze people, you stop all the changes from happening, you control all the variables, what you have is not the world. You have exactly not the world. Because the world is the thing that has all the variables uncontrolled. And that's what we want to talk about. It's not clear he makes a lot of headway on how we do that, unfortunately. But he does try and force people into thinking that way. Um, 
<coughs> and so, again, ends with aesthetics, ends with issues of communication, but primarily ends with a focus on ethics, which he felt was not very far off from aesthetics, by the way. How do you act in the world? That's his real question. And it was basically his question throughout his life. How do you be a decent human being? He thought you were a decent human being by pursuing the truth, not getting the truth, but trying earnestly, very earnestly in his case, to get the truth. So earnestly that we have one of his letters where a lady called him and said, oh, when you were in London, did you see Bob? And he said, yeah, I, I did. And then hung up the phone. And the next day she gets a letter from him. And the letter says, I'm sorry I lied to you. When I was in London, I was supposed to see Bob. I was not able to meet him. So I sent him a letter. And that's how I got the information that you were asking about. I did not actually have the opportunity to physically sit down with him. I apologize for misleading you. I should have been more succinct in my communication so that you clearly understood what I meant when I said that I had seen him. Please forgive me. It will never happen again. Yeah. so he was really pursuing this how do you live in this crazy mixed up world an earnest truthful life a hard question um, some of his answers were one go away from everybody and so he tended to withdraw into the countryside periodically because he found people overwhelming in the sense that he didn't know what to do with them because they would ask him questions and he would start to answer, and they'd be like, whoa, too much information, too intense, too many details, too confusing. He'd be like, well, that's it. What else can I tell you? So people became very frustrated with him. They, they, they all said, oh, we love Wittgenstein, but good God, I hope he doesn't visit anymore. <laughs> um, the other thing he did was service. He volunteered for World War I. He did not have to fight in World War I. He didn't have, basically, in his entire life, he did not have to do anything. Um, and fought bravely, won commendations, several commendations uh, for bravery during the war. Um, when he inherited one of the largest fortunes in Europe, he gave it all away, every last single penny. He kept absolutely nothing. And he spent a great deal of time with the family lawyers explaining to them that he wanted it drawn up so that he could never get the money. Nobody could give it to him. Just, just no, nothing, zero. I want none of it because it has nothing to do with me. And so he, he, he made himself poor voluntarily um, because he just thought it was a distraction. It would be a bad thing. It would be basically a dishonest thing. Um, during World War II, he said, great, I'm out of Cambridge. And he volunteered to be a porter in the hospitals. So first he just carried pills around to people. Right? And he would say, here's your pills. Don't take them. <laughs> Because I don't think the doctor knows what he's doing. <laughs> and so eventually they had to pull Fictisai aside and say, you know, really it would be better if you didn't tell our patients not to take their medicine. <laughs> Just deliver it. And then they pretty quickly realized that, hey, this is, guy's pretty valuable in this. We would like to have you do some research with us. Because, of course, World War II is going on, so they're getting lots of terrible wounds. One of the projects they put him on is shock. What do we do about shock? Wittgenstein's solution? Hey, there is no such thing as shock. Okay. It doesn't exist. If you look at your description of shock, it's exactly, that's why I use this at the beginning, a description of ADHD. It's so broad that everybody has shock or nobody. It's not a category. And so the British uh, medical system eliminated that whole definition because it was confusing. It was not a helpful category. It was a confusing category. And so they said, just don't, do not use the word shock. And so he got them to stop using the word shock. Because the research was pretty clear that it, it was like this. If everybody has it, nobody has it. If anybody that's admitted could possibly have shock, then that's a completely unhelpful category. It's a meaningless, it seems like it's meaningful, but it really has no meaning. Later they put him onto a process to try and help with blood pressure problems with people who've lost blood and are getting plasma and all this. And he designed and invented an entirely new method of monitoring blood pressure, administering blood, and doing all this. They're like, hey, you're a genius. And he's like, well, yeah, I'm Wittgenstein, huh? <laughs> I knew that all along. And, and he, by the way, he never told anybody he was a Cambridge professor either. They just thought he was like another you know, refugee German guy. And then every once in a while, someone would find out 
Where, where are you from? Oh, Cambridge. Student? No, professor of philosophy. You're that Wittgenstein. Yeah. Wow. And then they'd find out your family's really wealthy. He's like, I'm not. And he really did. He never took money from him. He really did in his whole life. And so he believed very strongly in service. Um, and he tried to apply himself to that. In all of his personal relations, he struggled with this issue. Uh, one, he was at least mostly homosexual. He fell in love with at least one woman very deeply. But most of his love affairs were with men. And some historians, I think, incorrectly have said, well, this is a major issue from him. Well, it was, but not because they were men. It was because of love and sex. He really thought that love should be pure and that sex was probably a bad part of that. And so for whole periods of his life, he really loved these people, but would never express it because he thought that would mess up the relationship, um, which is a curious and difficult way to have a relationship. And it tended to isolate him from people, specifically the people he loved. Occasionally, he was able to break through that, and much more successfully later in his life, when he finally said, you know what, sex and all that, that. it's okay. Uh, when he moved from this purity model, he says, this searching for purity is killing us. Love does not have to be pure in the absolute logical sense. It can be put into practice, physical practice, being physical sexually, but also in being in intimate contact of all kinds. And that can be a beautiful, wonderful thing. But it's a big, messy thing. It's confused. It's not definable. What might be working for me may not work for you. It may be different. What somebody else perceives of my love might be different from what I mean. Ah, and that he has to be okay with that. It was sort of his final frontier. Even if I try as hard as I can to be truthful and honest, you may not receive it that way. And that might, might not be a flaw in me or you. That might just be communication. And so, undergirding all of this work that seems very abstract when you read it, and I guess that's why I gave these longest excerpts here. Um, all, the next bunch of philosophers, very accessible. The first bunch, not so accessible. Um, but if you say, what would this mean if I were in love with somebody? And I thought, are we communicating? Are we really communicating? And that if we were actually communicating... I was doing a bad thing. For him, those were the stakes. Do you receive my love as I mean to send it? Am I understanding your love as you mean to send it? Can we grasp that? How can we communicate that? Can that actually be known and experienced? I love Beethoven. He loved Beethoven. Can we talk about the greatness, the powerfulness, the spiritually uplifting power of Beethoven even if we have no truth and can I communicate that and share that with another person other than just looking at each other quietly notice that's his conclusion of the tractus it's an amazingly barren conclusion I cannot speak of that which cannot be basically proved with absolute mathematical certainty which is to say I can't speak of anything because it would be a lie he moves from that to okay, that's not right, but now how do we deal with that? And so the heart of his, his philosophy, again, although it's, it's hard, it can be hard to track down because it's so abstract in places, is this very human problem that he lived every single day. When I create, and we, we must all admit, right, that sometimes we communicate people, we go, I don't think they quite got that, and I'm okay with that. Right? A little fuzzy on the edges makes everything much smoother. <laughs> or, I'm sure they got that wrong and that's perfect. <laughs> if they think that and I know they think that, oh, that's wonderful. See? Well, we do this. We have all these miscommunications, these subtle dishonesties. And, and Wittgenstein decided this was really the problem. The problem is language, but mostly the problem is how we use language. That we, we play the language games. We pretend to misunderstand, or we understand even though we don't. We, we act as if the references that are being used are shared when they aren't. Or we act as if, oh, I didn't really catch that when we do. And that we play these language games against ourselves and against other peoples, and that turns out to be a very bad thing. It takes him his whole life to work this out in great detail. Um, 
But towards the end, he really does. And he launches, although unpublished at his time, like he only published one book again. Important to remember. If you look up Wittgenstein online, they'll list 20 books by him. He published one during his lifetime. Everything else was from his notes, journals, notes for classes, and philosophical investigations was primarily finished by the time he died. He was ready to go to press when he died. But it was working towards this notion. He was never a professional philosopher. One, he didn't try to publish anything, which is death if you're a professional philosopher. Um, two, he tried to leave the university every chance he could. He would work there for a while and go, ah, this is terrible. When he went to Cambridge before World War II, it was only because Austria had ceased to exist when Germany invaded. So now he has no country. If he goes back to Austria, he'll be arrested as a Jew because he had two Jewish grandparents. And so there you go to internment camp. So he can't go back to Austria, which is now part of Germany. But he can't stay in England if he doesn't have citizenship. So the guys at Cambridge say, look, if you're a professor, they'll give you citizenship tomorrow. He's like, okay, I guess that's better than going back to Germany and being interned as a Jew. Right? This is not how most people feel when they get professorial chairs at Cambridge and Oxford. <laughs> Just this much better than being arrested by the Nazis. <laughs> but but he, this, is really, this is really where he was. He's like, you know, I, there's a certain kind of death if you're there. Um, uh, and, and he struggled with that and he left again right after the war he lasted I think a year and a half maybe two years and he left again moved out to the Scottish countryside um, but yeah, he lived to try to embody what he believed like Nietzsche unlike Russell uh, but very much like Nietzsche I have this idea that's great now live it ooh much harder a very much harder task his influence is so vast that it's hard to even talk about. But I just so I made a list here. The major philosophical schools that were founded either directly or pretty indirectly on his work, verificationism, logical positivism, <coughs> analytical philosophy, linguistic philosophy, major sections of math logic, empiricism, whole schools of aesthetics. There's a famous school in Vienna called the Vienna Circle. I don't know if anybody's heard of the Vienna Circle in... So he was a sort of member of that circle. He was really never a member of much of anything. Um, the three major philosophers that came out of there, Quine, Popper, and Firebrand, three hugely important philosophers in the 20th century, all three were working on subsections of Wittgenstein problems. He would give them a problem. They went their life. They spent writing on it. And then he would denounce them because he said they have it all wrong. <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. And he almost never talked to anybody. So some of the members of the Vienna Circle thought literally that, that uh, particularly Quine and Popper were making him up. <laughs> that they were acting like there was this crazy genius who showed up every once in a while and just blew everybody's mind and then never showed up again because they didn't meet him for a whole you know, months and months and years at a time and all of a sudden he'd show up. they go, oh, he really is a real person. He does exist. And then he would, of course, vanish off to Norway or Scotland or some place that he went to. Um, and so from him has flowed in professional philosophy, which I always think is hilarious, this major influence. And so there's a vast quantities of material written on the work of the people who've tried to follow aspects of his work and vast quantities of material on the work itself. Like I said, I think there's 16 or 17 books now published by Wittgenstein. Even though, again, one and, and philosophical investigations will count, but there's two published in his lifetime. Ah, what the professional philosophers can't do. They can't live it. See, that's the problem. This is what exactly he knew. Much of his reception is wrong. Because like, he didn't want you to write articles on verificationism. He wanted you to live verificationism. And if you couldn't live it, then it was by definition wrong. Any philosophy you can't live is wrong. Period. Because that's the definition of correctness. Lived in the world. Practiced by people. Unlived equals wrong. The notion that you could write an article and publish it and then like somebody convinced by that, you go, okay, great, no, ah, no. <laughs> is it in your heart? Is it in your actions? Is it in your life? If yes, you're on the, you're on the, on the Wittgenstein program and you're pretty much on the Nietzsche program, which is why they really, despite his huge influence on academic philosophers, his aesthetics, not so much. His a sense of asceticism, which is to say, you know, you've got to give up all your material possessions. You've just got to get that out of your life because they muck it up. You need to be thinking. You try to be pure. You need to be a saint. 
The Saints program, never all that popular, it turns out. Um, So his reception is very interesting and very difficult to, to, to work everything out. But it really boils down to this. There's an academic side to it. Um, but if you read his letters in particular, if you read, um, if you really work at Tractus, which is short but confusing the whole way through, but it's worth reading because you'll get sections and you'll go, ah, okay, now I think I get it. And then he'll change the subject entirely. But for whole sections, you can get it. If you look through uh, certain parts of the philosophical investigations, you go, ah, you start seeing this. His theories of aesthetics. Um, how do you feel about something? That's the first question he wants to know. How do you feel about it? Does it move you? If yes, we can talk about it. If no, we probably can't talk about it. That's where he lived. Um, and so for Wittgenstein, uh, two things I would say to remember is one is this movement uh, from, from this notion of absolute truth, rigorous truth, to the sense of no, it's extraordinarily complicated and human. And then there's a sense of whatever it is you think, Whatever it is you work out, however crazy, however logical, however much it reads like, you know, if, if alien tribes play chess, are they really doing it, right? What does that mean? It's the notion of how do we live? How do we communicate? How do we interact with people? How do we do it, most importantly, honestly? That would be Ludwig Wittgenstein. Thank you.